Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're talking about the Kingdom of God. We've gone through Exodus 34, and we've done some of the strange verses that uh, were seen in some of the instructions of Moses. And uh, we can uh, surmise from what we've been talking about uh, that uh, people got it drastically wrong when they're reading the Old Testament. And we know that the Pharisees, who were very learned in Hebrew... Uh, got the religion of Judaism completely mixed up if Christ was the Messiah. Now, there's a lot of Jews that are beginning to suspect that uh, Christ was the Messiah and that his teachings did fit in with Moses and that over the years people have strayed from the actual meaning of Moses and transplanted what he was trying to teach us into a ritualistic, superstitious, religious practice. While at the same time, they began to excuse covetous practices. I just had a conversation with somebody named Gomez on a a group on uh, Facebook this week and uh, he had asked a few questions and we'll probably go over some of that. I took a lot of notes when uh, he was coming back with his responses and of course he believes that, you know, that he is a Christian, that he is a follower of Christ and, uh, you know, his original question was, why is there any salvation insecurity when Jesus reassures us all that we cannot be snatched from the Father and Jesus' hand. So he's saying, why are are people in doubt of their salvation? That they're saved? Why, Why are they thinking that they can be snatched from that salvation? Well, the problem with his statement that Jesus reassures us all, he capitalizes all, all A-L-L caps. That we cannot be snatched from the Father and Jesus' hand. But it assumes the use of the phrase, us all have been saved and the same us all are with the Father. But that's not how we tell if we're with the Father or not. If we're following God. If we're following the uh, same God that taught uh, that. Moses was following and teaching us how to follow in the Torah. Just because you say that I'm saved, I believe in Jesus. Because the image in your mind of Jesus may be a graven image fashioned after your own imagination. And that you're not actually following Jesus. And so we have to look at the biblical text, Paul, James, Peter, that if you're doing certain things that are contrary to the instructions of Jesus, you're not following Jesus. You don't believe in Jesus. You're not keeping his commandments. 
You don't even really know what his commandments are. Now, in our, in our study of the commandments, the ten statements of Moses, we see that a lot of people don't understand those commandments. I just heard somebody talking the other day about the ten commandments. Most of them, yeah, don't really have anything to do with us. You know, we, Sabbath, why do we have to take off the Sabbath? Uh, Thou shalt have no other gods. Thou shalt make no covenants with them. How does that apply to everybody? That's that's some religious group that wants to form some sort of collective faith. And so they say, but, you know, thou shalt not murder, and thou shalt not steal, and thou shalt not bear false witness. Those are good things, and we can incorporate them. But all ten of them are on the... Supreme Court. Moses was teaching a people how to operate as a uh, nation. You know, right away he he formed the people in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. Uh, they were seemingly organized when they left Egypt. They had to be organized if you had the numbers that uh, some people say that we're leaving Egypt, you know, 600,000, a million. Even if it was 60,000 people marching out of Egypt, going down through the desert, you would have to be somewhat organized or you're going to be, you know, people are going to be falling away. You know, I remember years ago when I, you know, over half a century ago when I climbed down into the Grand Canyon and then marched back up, you know, the next day, uh, there was a Boy Scout troop strung out along the trail. For miles and miles, this Boy Scout troop were spread out, and there were young stragglers way in the back that were possibly going to faint. There was no adults back there with them. They were just left behind. Well, they had to have some way of keeping track of the the kids and the people and the people that were having difficulty in getting about uh, through this arduous journey out into the desert. So they, you know, there were people that even when we were in the military and we were having forced marches, there were guys who were starting to faint or starting to limp or starting to have difficulty and and we had to sometimes carry their pack and sometimes two guys went on either side of them and carried them and you have to be organized to do that. I mean, Joseph and Mary lost Jesus <laughs> just going to Jerusalem, uh, in, which was a very short distance. So they were organized from the very beginning. They were organized in the tens, hundreds, and thousands in order to establish courts. The idea of organizing in the tens, hundreds, and thousands goes back to even the dates prior to Nimrod. So, yeah, they were organized. And then when they had to deal with the Amaleks, they were organized. And they also were organized in their heave offerings and their wave offerings, which I've added a great deal to those pages. And we will have to just flat out dedicate a whole show just to 
wave and heave offerings. What are those? Because according to the interpretation, the modern interpretation, even the pharisaical interpretation to some degree, I think the modern one is even less accurate than what the Pharisees had, and the Pharisees didn't have it right at the time of Christ. That it wasn't about taking a little bit of sheaves of grain and waving it over your head and everybody seeing that. For one thing, everybody couldn't see that because you had a whole nation that spread out everywhere. We're going to see the construction of the tabernacle. If you have 600,000 people and you construct that tabernacle, it's a little tiny little thing in the midst of 600,000 people. When Moses goes to tell people stuff, he doesn't have a megaphone. He doesn't have a radio transmitter to to the guy in the back row. Uh, How do they communicate? Well, they have this network of tens, hundreds, and thousands that actually is providing an actual purpose of informing all the people. Just... Just the news media is passing down or passing throughout this network. Moses talks to 70 and then they each talk to 10, 20 guys and then they talk to 10, 20 guys and eventually you get out there the message to 600,000 guys. (laughs) And so they had to keep track. And I've, I've told stories when I took sheep out on the desert. And you see all these sheep spread out on the desert. And they're not very far apart. They're, but they're always in sight of one another. And they break up usually in smaller groups. I haven't seen groups of ten, but I see very clear groups of seven or eight sheep. And they are together all the time. And they keep an eye on other sheep. And there's one sheep in them that is a leader. And one time when I took the sheep way up on the high desert, up into the sagebrush early in the spring, when the grasses were just coming up on the desert. And of course the grasses on the desert are are far apart, so the sheep would normally be spread out over a wide area, like the cows are spread out over a wide area of the range. But even the cows, when they're up there, there's patterns to how they're standing. There'll be cows facing outward all around a big, big area. And some cows will be more into the, the middle. And each one, the, the, their position as they stand and graze is sending messages to the rest of the herd. And so if, if one of them sees a coyote or reacts or whatever, that will telegraph to the rest of the herd because they're generally in sight of one another. They go miles across in the desert grazing and they still know where everybody is at. Occasionally you'll find some loners out there with cows. But loners with sheep don't make it very far. So anyway, I took them way up on the high desert and all by themselves, they organized themselves shoulder to shoulder to shoulder to shoulder, a whole line of sheep, hundreds of sheep, all across the desert, each one where their shoulder was almost touching the sheep next to them, each one like a almost like a flock of geese was slightly behind the next one, the next one, the next one, 
And they were moving across the desert in this pattern of grazing. A single line all the way across the desert. Amazing that they did this. Well, they did it because they were in a strange area. They probably could smell coyotes around. And they knew that there was danger. But they were hungry. So they were going to eat. And so they organized themselves in a meaningful way. So that because... Their strength is not the fact that they're a 1,500-pound cow with horns. Their strength is in their numbers, that they will gather together. If if a coyote come into the field or a wolf comes into the field, the sheep will all gather together in a bundle. And when I used to run a Mustang horse that we used to ride out there with the sheep, they, they incorporated him into the herd. And when the, you know, coyotes came around or a mountain lion or a bobcat and they all sensed that and they moved together, they would move around and you would see standing up in the middle of this tightly packed herd of sheep with all the bigger sheep facing outward all the way around in all directions, there would be standing this black, black Mustang horse. And she would, he would just stand there. And ex- and accept his the position, but it was it, it it we didn't lose many sheep to coyotes when that mustang was out there, because they knew how to gather together to organize themselves, and this was essential for the Israelites. So they had organized themselves so that they could travel over long distances over un. Uh, terrain, a terrain that they were unfamiliar with. They organized themselves so that they could do battle. They organized themselves so that they could have a system of a courts and appeals courts all the way up to the cities of refuge. And they organized themselves in a social network of charity to take care of the needy of society, the widows, the orphans, the the families or individuals that were having an extra hard time that you had to do something to take care of them because they left with everybody. They didn't just leave with the strong guys. And that's a, another conversation I had with somebody, kind of secondhand conversation. I was in the room when the phone was uh, being answered and I could hear the conversation. People talking about getting out of the system, getting out of Egypt, getting out of the bondage, getting out of Babylon. Those are terms that we see throughout the Bible of, you know, come out of her, my people, as she be partakers of the sin. Well, there's a very specific way in which Moses brought the people out of the bondage of Egypt. If he had come in there and he said, let my people go to the Pharaoh and the Pharaoh said, okay, you, all your guys can just leave. They weren't ready to leave. They would just be, they would be like taking a black-faced farm flock sheep out on the desert. Well, I did that when I was a young man. We bought a number of uh, black-faced sheep and some model sheep, which is half black-faced and half white-faced sheep. White-faced sheep, not always, but a lot of the white-faced sheep are range-type sheep. They're used to open ranges, no fences. But the farm flocks like the Suffolks and the Hamps, they're kept in a fenced area all the time. So they're let out in a pasture and they don't get too far from each other because there's woven wire fences around them. 
But that doesn't work on the range. They have to stay together so that they can protect one another if there is danger comes into where they're at. And so the farm flocks have lost their natural instinct of organizing themselves. They don't know how to do it. They, they could easily be scattered. If dogs got in, they might try to gather together in a group, but they're easily frightened to run out in a circle away from the group and try to outrun the coyote. Well, coyote loves that because he's going to outrun that sheep. And because running is what he does, that and killing. So they had to, the Israelites had to learn how to come together, how to work together. So they had to pay their tally of bricks in hard times and without any government assistance from the Pharaoh. They had to learn that because they weren't going to be ready for the desert. They weren't going to be ready for the wilderness. They weren't going to be ready for the Amaleks. They weren't going to be ready for all the difficulties that they would have to face as free men under God until they learned how to come together and actually care about one another enough to stay and take care of one another in time of need. People want to find a commune somewhere, want to get together with some people and buy land, and, you know, and then we'll all work hard and farm on the land. If you don't know how to come together, that's not going to work. And so Moses is setting up a system which forces the people by the nature of the system to come together when there's hard times, when there's uh, famine, when there's enemy afoot, when there's predators. You know, like, this is what David was learning when he was a shepherd. How to kill a lion, how to kill a bear <laughs> with his sling. He was getting accurate at it. I know a boy who used to... He was a red-headed boy, and he'd get into trouble a lot with his dad. And his dad lived way out in the country, and he'd send the boy down the road, cool off. And the boy would have to go down to the end of the gravel road, walk all the way back home again, and cool off, because he was causing such trouble. And he'd pick up rocks, and he would throw them at the fence posts as he was walking by. Kept throwing them at the fence post. He got pretty accurate hitting that fence post with them rocks. Every time he was walking by another fence post, throw a rock and hit it, twang that fence post. Well, he became a pitcher <laughs> for a baseball team eventually because he had developed quite an arm as being the uh, the red-headed boy that he was. But that's you have to learn by doing, and the Israelites didn't know how to be free people. And unfortunately today, Americans don't know how to be free people. They've been too long in the fence field. They don't know how to take care of one another without some government assistance. They can't even educate their children. They can't even take care of their parents without going to the government trough and saying, help me out. I can't do this on my own. I need the government to force my neighbor to contribute to my welfare. And so anyway, when we went over uh, 34, we saw a lot of this. But we're going to go into 35 and get a little bit better picture of this. But there's a lot of strong delusions out there where people think they're saved because they had a thought that they said a magic phrase. Well, that's not going to save you tomorrow. Now, God's salvation is real. 
But you have to understand what God was really talking about when he talked to us through men like Moses and all the prophets and Jesus Christ and Paul. I mean, just to know that covetousness is idolatry. Then when you desire the benefits of men who exercise authority one over the other, although they may call themselves benefactors, you're going absolutely directly in contradiction to Jesus Christ. And certainly in contradiction to Moses. Because if if you just needed somebody who exercises authority and forces the contributions of the people to provide you with your daily bread, your leeks and onions, and your government welfare, you're back in the bondage of Egypt again. You need to have another way of operating. And that way is the way of Christ. So, getting into Exodus um, 35, we're going to... We're going to get into some of the building of the tabernacle. And if, as we go through 36, 37, 38, a lot of that, there's a lot of details. And so we're going to skip a little bit as we go through. But I'm going to touch on a number of the symbols that we find in the construction of the temple that are the same symbols that we also find in the construction of the wardrobe of the priests. But, like I said, what is the role of the priest? What are the purpose of the priest? What, what are the, the things that we see as rituals? What are they actually doing? Is it all about pomp? Or is it about a purpose? Well, of course, it's about a purpose. That we're supposed to be learning how to be a free people. And so if we can learn what Moses was teaching, it will help us understand what Jesus and the apostles were trying to teach us. And we can actually start seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But we'll do that when we come back. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So let's get right into 35. And uh, see if we can't make sense out of some of this to figure out what Moses was trying to tell the people. Why Why build this tabernacle? Why all these altars? Why are we burning up all these sheep? Like, I always thought it was strange that somehow or other a five-king army can march through and take Sodom and Gomorrah and all the city-states, takes hundreds, maybe thousands of people captive, takes all their gold, takes all their treasures, starts moving across the desert. And in one night, Abraham, with 900 people in his own group, plus the other people round about him that he had been teaching them how to build altars of clay and stone, they were able to muster an army overnight with no seeming king involved that defeated this other army immediately. How were they able to do that? Because they all burned up sheep together on piles of dead stone? Or was there something else going on? Well, of course, those of you who have been following along know that it didn't have anything to do with dead piles of stone. <laughs> didn't have anything to do with burning up sheep. 
it didn't have anything to do with red heifers <laughs> that you you burn up outside the camp and and you just sprinkle the ashes and all that stuff. All that is symbols. It's symbols written down in a very unique language. And if you have the Holy Spirit, you should be able to figure out what they're talking about. But if you have the spirit of deception, uh, the spirit of vanity, which is hand in hand with the spirit of deception, you're not going to get it. But we're going to lead you right up to the stream. It will be up to you to drink. <laughs> so anyway, so the this Exodus 35 It says, commanded what as my heading here. So, and Moses gathered all the congregation of the children of Israel together and said unto them, These are the words which the Lord hath commanded that ye should do them. Now, that word congregation, uh, it's a, it's a very, uh, Commonly used word, it shows up over a hundred and, well, actually it probably shows up over a hundred and fifty times. It's A-N-Delet, hey, is the basic root word, although it appears in lots of different ways. But it actually means a witness. It comes from a word that means a witness. So the congregations are in themselves a witness. And, and the Aeon, has to do with this divine providence, this eye, this fountain, the, the five states of kindness or the five states of severity. Uh, it's, it's kind of the milk and meat of the behavior of the people based on what is in them, based on the character that's in them. Delit has to do with selflessness and charity and the hay is an expression of thought, speech, and action. So you can't just, you know, we'll we'll pray for you because you know your your husband died, and you know you don't have any income anymore. You've got five kids, so we'll pray for you. No, it has to be charity, not only in speech but in action. You have to. You have to put some thought into how are you going to help this widow or these orphans and take care of them. And you do that through this congregation, this gathering. And if you do it, you become an, a, a witness to the Spirit of God that should be dwelling in you. So anyway, so this is what Moses is talking to the congregation, the Eda of the children of Israel. Now the children of Israel are those people who are contending with God, listening to God, uh, reacting to God in their hearts, to the Spirit of God in their hearts. There might be a lot of people out there that they count as a part of the nation, but they're not necessarily the children of Israel. Because it's not a bloodline, it's the people willing to walk in faith and contend with God. There were a lot of people out there in the desert, as we saw, with the 3,000 and the Levites were barring them from the camp. They barred them from the camp. 
If you don't consecrate yourself, dedicate yourself to the way that Moses is teaching us, if you're going to still want to go back to golden calves and central banks and reserve funds and all that kind of stuff to bind yourselves together, you can go do that, but you can't come into the camp. You have to openly consecrate yourself to the ways of Moses. And 3,000 didn't do that. So they're out. So they're, they went down the wadi or out on the desert. They went somewhere else. And they probably had plans to go somewhere else anyway. So they were not accepted. But a lot of those guys who would not go with those 3,000, which would be a little scary, they lied. They said they were consecrating themselves to the Lord and the ways of the Lord. But they didn't really. They're, they're bearing false witness, but they had to make the witness, and then later on we find that they're making the false witness, and something has to happen to them. And, you know, they end up falling away. We see later on where, uh, you know, there are thousands of people that are excluded along the way, because they're not really dedicated. They said they were. You know, like a lot of people tell me, they I believe in Jesus. But they're not doing what Jesus said. So, yeah, they call themselves Christians, but they're not really Christians. They're just saying they are. Now, some of them are under a strong delusion. Some of them don't know that they're not Christians. And, and Jesus talks about that. Many would say, Lord, Lord, but... I don't know them. Get ye from me, you workers of iniquity. So when he says, get ye from me, you workers of iniquity, that's how we can tell. By what they do. And of course, that's what James and Paul and Peter and all of them are saying. Not what you say. You say, we are all saved and we have our salvation guaranteed. But no, that's just what you say. But Jesus says, not what you say, but what you do. You have to do the will of the Father. And so if we understand what Moses is telling us to do, we will have a better understanding, at least in our minds, of what the will of the Father is. Obviously, he doesn't want you murdering. Obviously, he doesn't want you to be uh, stealing from one another. He doesn't want you to covet one another's goods. Uh, Certainly not through men who exercise authority. One over the other. That should just be a no-brainer that I don't even have to explain. If you desire benefits from men who exercise authority, who take away from your neighbor or your neighbor's children so that you can have stuff for free, you're probably not a Christian. So anyway, he's speaking to this congregation of the children of Israel together. Well, of course, there's too many. The back row's not hearing him. Of course, this is where the network comes in. You know, you may watch CNN, or you may watch Fox, or you may watch NBC. You know, and you get your, maybe you get your news from QAnon. Who knows where you get it from? But if you get it through a network of people that are dependent upon one another through charity alone you're going to have a different source of news. You're going to find out who you can trust and who you can't. And you're going to be able to look them in the eyes and say, what did Moses say? (laughs) 
Blessed are the cheesemakers? No, no. He's got, they have to learn who, you know, is going to hear the message and pass it on to the next guy. Because that's the only way to communicate through this network. The same as those sheep out there on the desert. They, they know this one moves. You know, I saw the cattle were out on a big wide area and there was a coyote that came into the field. That was a long ways away from the calves and there were calves in the field, small calves in the field. And one cow got excited all of a sudden and frightened. And it went running to its calf, looking for its calf, mowing frantically. And I could see it running across the desert. Now, all the other cows were up. Some of the other cows, they stood up, you know, they lifted their heads up and they they looked at this cow running across and then they went back to eating. And I thought, well, that's interesting. That cow is definitely making a stress noise, a frightened noise running to her calf, like her calf is in dire need of aid. And all the other cows look and they pay no attention. They don't do anything about it. Why is that? (laughs) Why did they? Because they knew that cow better than I did. Some cows will moo for their calves and they'll make their calf come to them. They start this day one when the calf is born. The others are, are more nervous and skittish and they'll all of a sudden they'll look around for their calf and they'll run to their calf. Different parenting skills there. <laughs> they're, they're making the calf come to them or they're running to the calf. The mothers who make the calf come to them are the better mothers. The ones who run to the calf, they're not so good. And everybody knows who they are. And uh, at least in the herd... Uh, if you're a good herdsman, you'll know which ones they are. So anyway, this kind of psychology is going on all the time in this tens, hundreds, and thousands. People are learning. Uh, th- this guy never gets the story straight. I'm not even going to ask him, what did Moses say? Because I can't rely on him. Because he, he, he ends up making all these... Uh, grandiose ideas and he's fear-mongering and all this stuff. We're doing it on a national media level. And and what we and not only, we can see it very clearly in the last few years with the media has, you know, been the greatest uh, representation of misinformation has come through the major medias. We we know that it's just a matter of fact, although a lot of people still aren't admitting it. <laughs> But the the reality is is that you know you need to develop a different source of information. You need to know who you can rely on and who you can't rely on, and you can't uh, find that out with wishful thinking, like following Q, uh, you know, the Gospel of Q. <laughs> uh, there are such a thing as the Q Gospels. It has nothing to do with Q and non, but. Uh, the reality is is that uh, these people are presenting ideas that we would like to be true and people are accepting them. It, the truth is the truth. It's not what you like to be true. So, uh, 
these words are passed down through the tens, hundreds, and thousands, which create a bonds in the society. And also, from both directions, the people down there receiving the information and the people bringing the information to the people. This is very important so that you're, you begin to know who you can trust and who you can't trust. Then also when there's hard times, when somebody, you know, if somebody was sick one day uh, traveling with the Israelites, does everybody in Israel have to wait for that person to catch up? Or do we just, you know, leave the stragglers behind like that Boy Scout troop, you know, who didn't even know <laughs> how many guys were still down the trail or where they were. They had no adults following them. You had to have, you had to be organized. You'll need that if you're going to leave Babylon. You're going to need that network and you're going to have to build that network over a period of time. And right now, a lot of the people that are in our network are scattered out. So they, many of their gatherings are by phone calls. But who shows up regularly? Who attends those calls regularly? Who stays on point? Who doesn't go wandering off into this guru theory or that guru theory? Because they've actually taken the time to find out what is true and to have that conversation with others. So, verse 2, Six days shall thy work be done. But on the seventh day there shall be to you a holy day, a Sabbath of rest to the Lord. There will be to you this holy day, this Sabbath day, this rest. If you do the work for the six days, whosoever doeth the work therein shall be put to death. So, are they, is he really all of a sudden slipping this in? Now he's going to say all the stuff you have to do. And then he's just talking about the Sabbath. He's not talking about the covenants. He's not talking about, you know, murder. He's not talking about covetousness. He's mentioning the Sabbath. Because he's telling the congregation what they should do. And that's part of the work. If you're not doing what you should be doing, then you're not working the six days. If you're not working the six days, you will not get the rest. You will not receive the rest of the Lord. Because you didn't do what the Lord said. This is what Jesus said. Not those who say they're going to do, but those who do. Not the, you know, the two brothers one said he was going to do what the father said, but he didn't. And the other one who said he wasn't going to do what the father said, but then repented and said, well, I'm going to go do it. I I shouldn't have been such a hothead and I go do it. So which one is the son? The one who said or the one who did? Now you know who the real Christians are. The ones who are actually doing what Jesus said. And are not doing what Jesus said not to do. Same with Moses. And put to death on our page at Preparing You. If you go, there's a, there's a whole article on put to death. And we will be constantly adding to that article, put to death. 
so that you can understand and see that it doesn't mean kill. That's not the purpose of the statement put to death. It's the same purpose of that statement as the purpose of those 3,000 who would not dedicate themselves to the way of Moses, which is the way of the Lord, were out. They're they're not going to be let into the gates of the camp. They were barred from entry. They could go do their own thing. They got the rest of the world to go to and do their own thing. But no, uh, they're not going to be let into the camp. So, on, you know, we're. I will be constantly adding to that page on put to death. And we have several sections already. Put to death by whom? Put to death by the fact that they've rejected God. You don't have... Did did the Israelites have to kill the Egyptians? No. The Egyptians killed themselves because they were blinded to the truth that they shouldn't kill the Israelites or rob the Israelites, that they were set free by their own words and then they reneged on that and they were going to attack them and they killed themselves. The Israelites didn't have to kill them. They didn't have to put the Egyptians to death. The Egyptians were going to put them to death. But they didn't have to put the Egyptians to death. So nowhere in here is God saying, He's not turning His Israelites that are learning to live by faith, hope, and charity. He's not turning them into murderers, killing people. And we'll see that also when we study stoning. Surely die by what cause is another section. Capital punishment and the uh, Abimelech. Uh, death, uh, depths of death. Blood for blood. Levite smite. So we have all these different sections that are dealing with different places in the Bible and explaining that God was not creating a nation of people putting people to death. They were actually operating much like the early Christians. So anyway, verse 3. And ye shall kindle no fire throughout your habitations upon the Sabbath day. And Moses spake unto all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord commanded, saying. Okay, kindle no fire. Does it really have to do with the fact that you can't, you know, like if you're in Minnesota, you can't even turn on your heat? Well, actually, talking to some people that are familiar with a lot of the Jewish traditions, yeah, they have, they have, they they have ways to work around that. But that just like with the milk and meat thing. They've created the ritual, but they don't even understand what it means to kindle a fire. And, and what, what they're talking about in kindling a fire in your habitations. What's, what's the Hebrew word there for habitations? What, what, what does Sabbath mean upon the Sabbath day? And, and what is the kindling of the fire actually mean? Just like with the meat and the milk. You know, boiling a kid in its mother's milk has nothing to do with a kid goat, has nothing to do with the milk of its mother, and it has nothing to do with boiling. We have a page on 
milk and meat. We've done one show on it, but I've expanded that page drastically in the last couple of weeks to take you through step-by-step, word-by-word, letter-by-letter sometimes so that you understand that Moses is not just slipping in a food law. And I actually found other scholars that are kind of on the right track, uh, but we've, we've taken it even a step farther. So you can see it not through such a glass looking dimly. But of course, ultimately, you need to have the Holy Spirit and be willing to receive the Holy Spirit in order to have the eyes to see what we're saying. But we've given you lots of evidence. So, it really doesn't have anything to do with starting a fire uh, in your habitation. It has to do with virtually strange fire, which we will look at at another time. So, verse 5, Take ye from among you an offering unto the Lord, whoever is of a willing heart, let him bring it an offering of the Lord, gold, silver, and brass. So now we're talking about this construction, willing to build this this uh, uh, tabernacle. And they're going to need building materials. And people who are willing bring it. And they talk about blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen and goat's hairs and ram skins dyed red and badger skins. And we've talked about badger skins. It's not badger skins. It's actually beaded work that uh, is put together. And there we give you lots of examples of that. I think I have an actual article on it now. But uh, over there in the side panel, we give you uh, links to uh, other people, uh, archaeologists that say they used to make sandals out of this beaded work and and everything it has nothing to do with badger skins. And the only point that I put out, I mean, if you go through life and you never know that badger skins is actually beaded work <laughs> that is covering the outside of the tabernacle, uh, because this is a mobile structure, but it's like, you know, the scales of an armadillo uh, protecting the... Uh, the work and then why uh, ram's hides dyed red, why uh, this idea of blue uh, thread. Well, there's actually the same word that you see translated blue. Uh, you know, it appears, the word blue appears about 50 times in the Bible. And uh, in the Hebrew, it's teka left, which is actually begins with a tov and ends with a tov. It's Tov Kuf Lamad Tov. And uh, it's said to mean blue or a brilliant red or a deep purple. Uh, Although they have another word for purple. Uh, Some think it's from the word Shekeleth, which can mean Anakcha. It's an ingredient actually used in incense as well. It can produce this color blue. But the same exact word can also be translated lion or fierce lion. And But it's actually similar to another word, which is from the word kala, meaning accomplish. So, even when they talk about blue threads and purple threads and, 
and these different color threads. There's symbolism in the words. Now, he is actually explaining to the people how to construct the tabernacle, how to weave the garments for the priests. But just as our article on breaches shows that, yeah, the people are supposed to sew their underwear, has nothing to do with underwear. There's a symbol. Now, they might have actually sewed some of them, but the the real purpose is sewing permission to be their ministers because this is a government of the people, for the people, and by the people. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, in this uh, look at these symbols, I mean, you can get into this deeper and deeper and deeper, and that's what we've done with some of the things like the 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 goat seething in its mother's milk, is that we, you know, I did one show on that, but then as I was going over the material, I could see that we could take this even deeper and deeper, and then I found other scholars that were saying, seeing that, and this is one of the things that you, you're... You need to learn to do the same as, you know, Facebook always tells you lacks context. You know, it doesn't, you know, when they try to censor you. But the reality, you need to censor yourself and censor what comes into your mind, what you think is true, and not accept what you think is true because that's what you want to hear. You want to actually know the truth. So that when you're looking at this uh, material... You can say, well, you know, you'd be constantly reverting to the Holy Spirit saying, is this true? Is this accurate? Is this the truth? And you have to be willing to admit that you haven't got it yet and wait upon the Lord and quiet your mind and stop going through life wishfully thinking that what you already believe to be true is true. You should be questioning uh, not doubting, but questioning. You're not doubting the truth. You're doubting your ability to see the truth. And we see stories over and over and again in the Bible about men who think they know what they're supposed to do, but they want to keep going back to God and saying, well, what about this? What about that? That's being Israel. That is contending with the truth. Because it's an ever never-ending quest for the truth. Because you, you're never going to see the whole truth. You, you just don't have the capacity for it. So, okay, there's symbols and all these things that are part of the construction material, but they do want you to actually build, or they did want Israel to actually build this uh, tabernacle and the ark, and all the instruments in it, but they're all symbolic of spiritual realities. If you don't eventually get around to the spiritual reality, you've got nowhere. You've just got rituals and ceremonies. and But they're meaningless. They're, they're superstitious. They're virtually witchcraft. So anyway, we see in verse 10 where it talks about every wise hearted uh, amongst you shall come and make. Well, the wise-hearted are those that perceive things correctly. That they they are seeing it with a certain amount of accuracy. And, of course, that's what you're doing 
when you're getting your news through the tens, hundreds, and thousands, is you're finding out, is my minister one of those cows that run across the desert mowing and screaming and nobody pays attention to because he's always worried about this happening or that happening. Or maybe, he, you know, I think that that whole QAnon thing, uh, although some of the things that come down through that network may be accurate. There may be elements of truth into it. But what I see it most often doing is placating the people saying, Oh yeah, these guys are gonna, these guys are gonna solve the problem. You don't have to do anything because they're in control and they know what's really happening and you know the the power behind Trump and all these things are gonna work out and it's all gonna be a great day. No, you individually have to get better at being righteous. You individually have to discover the Holy Spirit, and the truth that only the Holy Spirit can reveal to you. It's not an exercise in the tree of knowledge. It's an exercise in the tree of life. And that means that you're going to have to not depend upon QAnon and all the people supposedly behind the scenes that are going to fix everything at the last minute. You have to become a part of the solution. So, the wise-hearted the people who are seeing that, and you'll find out who they are, that are seeing the truth, that are accurate, and are saying, hey, that's not the way to go. And you go, well, you know, maybe I should look at what he has to say. Because <laughs> he's been right so many times before. <laughs> or maybe I should listen to this guy. And that's what Israel was doing was it was constantly in a state of reorganizing itself as to who was right, who was accurate, who was reliable, who could you count on. I've talked about babysitter cows. There are certain cows that will be left back with the calves because the calves aren't going to be wandering way out on the desert. If you're, Again, you're in a farm flock of cows. You know, they're all in this pasture and the pasture is fenced off. And, but... Out on the range, the calves can't follow their mom all day long while their mom is out there gathering in 50 pounds of desert grasses. So the calf will lay back and wait for its mom's return. Well, they bed them down. At first, they bed them down separately in a bush, but eventually they bed bed them all down together. And somebody stays back with them. And they eat the grass nearby where those calves are. And the other cows go out farther ranging to get grasses farther out. And that, cause that's, you have to be spread out. That's, you know, that was one of the things that I saw early on in it, in my study of Exodus. Knowing sheep, no, they have flocks of cattle and sheep. They're not walking in a straight line all the way across. When they went down the wadi, they probably did that. But once they got out to the other parts in the foothills and the deserts and everything, they're grazing their flocks all over the place. Because if they stay in one place, they're out of food within hours. So they're spread out. Thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people are spread out all over the desert. But yet they're a nation. Of course, eventually when they get into what we call the promised land, which is 
the promised land is the land of the faithful. It's not a geographical location. But when they get to what we call Israel and the promised land, they're still spread out. They can't see the temple from where they're at. (laughs) And when they started building a stone temple, that was departing from the way. So, the finding out who the wise men are, finding out who the charitable men are, finding out who the brave men are, who you can count on and who you can't count on, this is an ongoing process of this nation. And Moses is going to set up ways in which they do that. And he sets up this tabernacle that moves around, little tiny tabernacle, moves around, and it symbolizes everything that should be going on in every single community and and the structure, just like the altars of unhewn stone, listening to Jordan Peterson. Nobody on his round table figured out what it meant to be unhewn stone. They got real close at times, but they never really got it. And so, of course, they never really got what a burnt offering is either. They actually believed, and several of them said so, that there was no social safety net in those days, so they had to have slavery. That's actually what their conclusion was. Slavery is what they had in Egypt. Corby's system of statutory bondage. That was the bondage of Egypt. They were all slaves through that Corby in Egypt. Because Egypt was their social safety net. If there wasn't enough food, there was a welfare system that had grain at the temple that could hand out grain to people that were starving and hungry. And they had priests to manage that system. That's what the priests were there for. Even when you go up to the Teutons, they had priests that helped manage the welfare system of the Teutons. But everybody knew what was going on, and some of that, when we get into heave offerings and wave offerings, has to be done publicly, so that you know where the offering is going. Your individual offering is between you and your individual minister. His individual offering to the minister that he picks, that's between him and that minister. But the wave offering and heave offering had to be done publicly. Why? To prevent what you have going on in your governments all over the world today. Which we call bribery and corruption. (laughs) So they had to do it openly so you knew they weren't bribing people with the wave offering. Which is just the redistribution of the heave offering. I can't find hardly any scholar that sees that. When I read it I go like... Heave offering, that's the offering that is passed up through the network. Wave offering, that's the offering that goes to and fro. That is totally at the discretion of the high priest and his family. And why do I say the high priest and his family? Because the high priest is maybe 80 years old. And he has sons who are maybe 70 years, well, 60 years old. And they may have sons that are 40 years old. And they may have sons that are 20 years old. So that's a big family. Okay? The heave offering goes up to them. And it's for their family according to the modern interpretation. 
but really it's for the people. It's coming from hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people is passing this up through this network. What are they going to do with that? Live in the lap of luxury? They shouldn't live any higher than a, the average guy in Israel. They don't need any more money than that. They're waving it. They're passing it to and fro to the Levites. Who are, you know, who, there's more need over here, so we're going to send more over here. There's more need over here, so we're going to send more over here. That's the waving heave offerings. They're waving the heave offering out to the people. And it has to be done publicly so that you know that he's not bribing the guys that are going to keep putting him back into office. You know, I, I see these corrupt guys in governments all over the world. United States, no exception. We know they went in paupers. <laughs> they didn't have much money. And they're millionaires today. Worth $10 million, $20 million, $30 million. How'd they get to be so wealthy? Bribery and corruption. <laughs> and you you make little laws that they have to, you know, campaigns, you know, contributions have to be. And we know, just recently uncovered, um, that they, people are sending small donations, 10, 20, 50 bucks, Using somebody else's name so that somebody who sends like a hundred bucks a year, maybe three or four times a year, they send ten bucks to a candidate or to the Democratic Party. When they actually look at the names, they're finding out that that individual, according to the records, sent hundreds of thousands of dollars. Well, they said, we don't have on it. We never did that. But it's done in their name. That's graft and corruption. It's supposed to be done so everybody can see it, but nobody's looking because your media is not formed according to the the mountains of Samaria <laughs> that you should have, which you would have if you were organized in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. So it's interesting that the guy who kind of uncovered this and has made a public display of it, who recently was kicked out of his original organization, is now starting a new one, is now enlisting the help of uh, citizen journalists, he calls them, all over the country to go and investigate in their local communities this graft and corruption. Of course, now, if you were in the tens, hundreds, and thousands already, you would have that network already in existence. But you don't. So he, he's taking you in a step in the right direction. But if you were really doing what Christ and Moses said, you would already be there. You would already be a free people. In the world, but not of the world. But because you're of the world, you're back in the bondage of Egypt. So... Anyway, as we go down to this, they also mention these, you know, these different offerings, the altars of burnt offerings that we see in verse 16. And I have a whole article that, so you can find out what the burnt offerings was. 264 times it mentions burnt offering in the Bible. That's a lot of times. And, and sometimes they translate it burnt sacrifice because an offering is a sacrifice. But this, it never mentions burnt charity. But that's what it is. It's burnt charity. It's, uh, you know, it actually, 
you know, the the word that they translate into burnt offering, it, it's defined as whole burnt offering or ascent, stairway, steps. So how is a burnt offering also mean ascent, stairway, and steps? Remember that the Levites weren't supposed to go up by steps, but yet they're talking about the burnt offerings are actually steps. <laughs> so the offering goes up, but not the Levite. He doesn't go up because he, he's an unhewn stone. He doesn't exercise authority one over the other. But what he does is he receives something from the people as a free will offering. He takes a portion of that and gives it to the minister above him. But it's a minister of service, not a minister of power. That minister has no power to force him to give that up to him. He chooses to give that up to him. And then now when he gives it to him, he has total choice of what to do with it. And he he gets it from nine other ministers who he serves. And so then he will take 10% of that, basically 10%, a portion of the tenth that he received from everybody. And he passes up what he doesn't need to the next minister. And they do this until they get up to the high priest. And the high priest turns around and waves it. Gives it back to the ministers he thinks needs it the most. Because maybe in this area there. So this is a redistribution of wealth through the empowerment of individuals. Through charity. That's a completely different thing than what you're doing in Australia, in, in America, in Canada, in Venezuela, in the Congo, <laughs> in London. You give men the power to take from your neighbor so that you can have free stuff. Don't you see that that is direct opposition to God? And the ways of God. And has brought you back into the bondage of Egypt where you have become merchandise. Where you have become human resources. And you have cursed your children with debt. Right now, I saw a commercial uh, saying that you don't want to be the, the mega people that are trying to destroy America and take jobs away from the people because they want fiscal responsibility in the budget. They don't want to approve raising the debt ceiling unless they get concessions of less spending in certain areas. And they, they say in the areas of energy. that Most of the grants that are coming out and the money that is coming out this whole energy thing is a boondoggle of pork barrel uh, corruption. It is it is making millionaires of people that are not saving you one bit of energy whatsoever. It's a big payoff. It's a big redistribution of wealth to the wealthy. That's what's going on with. Making you think, oh yeah, we're helping out the little guy. No, the corruption is so rampant. You know, and I know people right in government who are, who are responsible for, for millions of dollars in, in budget money. They can see that this corruption 
you know, statewide, nationwide, is unbelievable. It's the, well, during the whole COVID escapade, it was the greatest redistribution of wealth in the history of the United States took place. And it wasn't for the poor. They gave them a lot of money. Yeah, but a lot more disappeared into that. The bank accounts of all people who are already millionaires and billionaires. And your media is not telling you the truth. But then, of course, your media is not based on the tens, hundreds, and thousands in the way of Moses. Your media is based on your imagination and what they can flash on the screen in front of you. So in verse 21, we see his spirit made willing. And they brought the Lord's offering to Rumah, is the word that we see there. Made willing, even the word made willing is from that same word. It's a contribution. It's the charitable contribution, the offering that is made. Now, there were contributions in Egypt. That was called your tally of bricks. You make contributions. We did a show recently on April 15th, and I mentioned that. That's your contribution was being made (laughs) at that time. But it wasn't a free will. It wasn't your willing contribution it was a compelled contribution and and that's the difference between a free government and a not so free government a free government your contribution is willing now in order to do that there has to be immediate repercussions in a real way with the people who give and the people who don't give and what you give is and, and what you receive back is the communion of your community. You give to your minister. He gives to his minister. Now, there is no central bank because, say, I gave 10% to my minister. I gave it up to my minister. See, if you're the high priest, who do you give to? Well, you give back to the people with a wave offering. That That's the way that works. So that, that's the full cycle. It's because the high priest doesn't have a priest to give up to. He just keeps everything. You know, like that is the joke I did of the rabbi, the minister, and the priest. <laughs> How do they decide what goes to God? Well, it all goes to God, and the best way to give to God is to give to the, your neighbor who's in need in a way that strengthens him. And this, this is a different system than what you've been taught and brought up with. It's different than what most people think when they read the Bible. But this system of willing offerings to the house of the Lord is the social safety net of the congregations of Israel. And it is the way in which they redistribute wealth. So that if I give to my minister, and then I end up having a greater need than my congregation can provide for my congregation... I can call up to my minister and say, we have a greater need down here. We had two houses burned down and we had, you know, a flood and we had all this other problems. And he can not only send back that tithing that I sent him to help with us, he can call on the other ministers and say, you know, you know, Steve, Joe, Greg, whatever, They've got some extra problems here. And somebody else say, oh, well, we've actually had a kind of a windfall. Things 
we had a really good crop, and so we can help out with that. And they have a way of doing that, of moving the blood of their society around through charity. See, if you create the cities of blood, which we have an article on, you should read that. If you create the cities of blood, you will circulate money around to the needy, you know, uh, food stamps, welfare, all this stuff. But you will be operating by men who exercise authority. You do not have unhewn stones in your altar. You you have a Federal Reserve, but it's you don't have the wealth. You don't own the gold anymore. <laughs> and you don't even have the gold anymore. But it's a different system. So you can get caught up with the candlesticks mentioned in verse 4 or the table and the staves mentioned in verse 13 or the ark and the staves thereof and the mercy seat and you get all caught up with that but then you miss the altar of burnt offerings and the purpose of those burnt offerings. You're worried about it being made out of brass or being made out of gold and all these other things. Those are symbols Telling you about a way, the way of Moses, the way of the Lord, the way of God, the way of Yahweh, the way of Jesus. And it's a way of charity. It's a way of you laying down part of your power of choice to giving that choice to your neighbor so that he can make a choice. I give to my minister so that he can make a choice with it. Eventually the high priest gives back to the people so that they can make choices with what they give them. But they're keeping in mind the morality of God and not kindling some kind of strange fire in your system where you're forcing an offering. Oh, I'm giving you a hint now. When we get to strange fire, what does strange fire mean? <laughs> well, we'll cover that in a show all by itself because you're going to have to go deeper and deeper into that. So, we see this, um, the same symbolism that we saw in the building of the tabernacle, which was a central national symbol. It's, it's the meaning of it that is important. And, uh, the, the same word, you know, when the garments are constructed, the same word that means garment, beged, is also the word for treachery and deceit. See, you're, your government in the United States and Canada and all that stuff, you know, and boy, I listen to Jordan Peterson sometimes talking about Trudeau. He thinks that, that guy is treachery and deceit. And he's right. The garments of that guy are treachery and deceit. But the problem isn't that guy. It isn't Trudeau that is the problem. He is the evidence of the problem. The problem is is that Canada is not organized in the tens, hundreds, and thousands in a system based on faith, hope, and charity and free will offerings. Canada is organized as a common purse that runs towards evil, runs towards death, that is a snare and a trap and weakens the people, degenerates the people, because they become accustomed to living at the expense of others and depending for their livelihood on the property of others. You're going to end up with a Trudeau. We'll be back to Keys of the Kingdom.
So welcome back. So in finishing up with this uh, chapter 35, we see down there, at least in verse 22, that we're willing-hearted and every man that offered, offered an offering unto the Lord. God didn't need any of this stuff. God doesn't need your money. He doesn't need your gold. He doesn't need your sheep. He doesn't need to smell your sheep burning over a roasting fire. (laughs) He doesn't need that. There is an actual purpose to this. It's not a mindless ritual. It is the tabernacle. Uh, is talking about entering the tabernacle. They're talking about entering a tent. And they talk about burning sweet incense and the incense altar, etc. What is incense? What is this incense and altar? And I'll, I'll mention this a number of times, but in studies I, I came across the fact that one of the titles of Augustus Caesar was Son of God. He was called the Son of God. And every year, the heads of families had to go to the temple and have it recorded by what we would call scribes. I mean, the book of Numbers has to do with accounting. So there was an accounting going on in, you know, like the, the, the single uh, half denarii that every family, head of every family was to pay into the temple every year. One simple half denarii was to be given. And that was your ante up. That was the only compelled tax. And it was to say, I'm in. You know, like a pot of poker. I'm in. I'm with you guys. This is my dedication amount. It's a little tiny amount. And anybody could pay it for you if you didn't have it. But it was given into the system. And just like the first fruits, the first fruit of a particular... Uh, you know, young heifer, young uh, ewe lamb has its firstborn. The firstborn is supposed to be given to God. Well, God doesn't need it. So, what is it? What is it? Have you got six hundred thousand people out there? <laughs> what 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 is God doing with all those firstborn animals? I mean, if there's six hundred thousand people out there, there there could be six hundred thousand sheep out there, or sheep or cattle. So. What what do you do with a hundred thousand? What is what is he going to do with all these tens of thousands of cows and sheep that are coming into the temple? I mean, it's, you can burn it up all you want. I mean, like, I didn't even know where they're going to get that much firewood to burn all those animals up. Well, they're not. It's a burnt offering, and it's given up, goes up by steps because it's burnt up to you. You don't have it anymore, but somebody does have it. It's the Levites who will have it. And they have it for the purposes of serving the tabernacles of the congregation. The tents of the congregation. The tent of the congregation. The individual tents of every individual in the congregation. We saw before when the tabernacle was set away from the camp of the people... The people worship from the door of their tent, from the door of their tabernacle. In other words, they would send their offering from there. And and where does it go? Does you know when you're in Israel, they have to we have to mail this off to Jerusalem. <laughs> you 
know, get UPS to deliver our offering to Jerusalem. No, you give it to your Levite minister. Because the Levites, we'll see this more as we go through these chapters, belong and, and go through our offerings. The Levites belong to God. So if you give it to the Levite, you gave it to God. You don't have to truck it all the way to the tabernacle. So you can worship from the door of your own habitation. And worshiping God is caring about God's creation, dressing and keeping it as much as you care about your own life. So, of course, part of that creation is your neighbor. So, worshiping has to do with serving your neighbor. And you say, well, I I help out my neighbor when he needs help, but he never needs help, so I never do anything. (laughs) Or I stopped and helped that old lady change her tire. You know, there's a comedian who has a story about, you know, seeing a lady, old lady on the side of the road with a flat tire and nobody was stopping to help her. And and he just drove by and he thought, like, I shouldn't have just drove by. And so I it's too late to go back now, he said. <laughs> so so I, because I'm a Christian now, I prayed for her. <laughs> yeah, right. But uh, this is... This is what they're talking about. But they, back to the Augustus Caesar, they had to burn incense at the temple. It would be recorded that they're burning incense at the temple. They had to buy the incense from the temple and they also should give an offering based on their status at the temple in commemoration to the fact that Caesar Augustus was the son of God. That's actually the title, Son of God. And then along comes Jesus, who says, Yeah, he's the Son. Of, he's going to be called the Son of God. And people are going to burn an offering to Jesus, to God the Father, because he says, You know, it's the Father who sent me. But it's all free will. Nobody, nobody's going to get fined or penalized. But it's a government of the people, for the people, and by the people. I don't know how many times I can stress that. But that's what they're talking about all the time in, in this biblical text. And they get down into some of these other verses where you're talking about Bezalel, spirit and wisdom. And so this is where we pick up in uh, chapter 36. And it talks about Bezalel and Aholiab, every wise-hearted man. And it talks about God putting wisdom into these men because they they were wise-hearted, because they were willing to receive this. And this is this is a phenomenon I hope that all of you will experience eventually. Is that the more you approach the sanctuary, the holy. The service of the holy, of the taking care of one another through faith, hope, and charity, of laying down your life for your fellow man in a way that strengthens him. The more you will be open, the closer you will be to the Lord so that he can put wisdom in you. And then you'll find yourself listening to some of these people and saying, 
I don't think that I should listen to this guy. I don't think I should get this jab. I don't think that I should do this or that or the other thing. But I think I should do this because God will be putting wisdom in you. He will be writing upon your hearts and your minds. So all the people, as we see in Exodus 36, were bringing these free will offerings for the construction of the temple so that it could provide the services of the sanctuary. Now, of course, there was an actual physical tent structure, you know, with all this different colored linen and and red uh, ram's hides and all this stuff. And it was somewhat impressive. Uh, certainly the badger skins would have to be impressive. And uh, there was some smoke coming up from it. And there was candles, light in it, uh, you know, that you could see when if you got close enough. But most of the time, the people were really far away because they were t- tending flocks over hundreds, maybe thousands of acres. And, but... They did this with free will offerings. Every morning, every morning, they would free will offerings. I mean, you get your coffee every morning. Where's your free will offering every morning? You know, and, you know, so that's what everybody should be doing in order to create that network of charity, which you will need when you come out of her and stop being partakers of her iniquity and her sins. So eventually they had so much they had more stuff than they needed and they had to put a restraint on the people not to do it. And then from about verse 8 on they're going to talk about all the details in the making of this, you know, with tenons and rings and and what you do on the west side and what you do on the east side and and the different items and everything. And again these are symbolic but also it is structural like your blue and your purple and your scarlet and your fine twined linen of needlework and the five pillars and all these things. It's all a part of the system. So anyway, uh, I have on the page a picture there and it's of the bondage of Egypt. I may change that, but basically this Egyptian bondage was that 20% of your labor belonged to the government of the pharaoh. And so this produced a lot of bricks, and with the bricks they could build uh, granaries, and they could build buildings, and they. But you also did other things. They didn't just do brick making. We know they had all kinds of skills, and but twenty percent of your labor belonged to the government. So the value of that went into the government, and they filled the granaries with grain, and that was your social safety net in the time of need. And they had a way of distributing it. Correctly, amongst the needy, they didn't just throw grain out the window and everybody who could run and get it, get it. They had a system of priests already. Even Aaron was knew the arts of the temple, the redistribution of the wealth that came into that temple. But, because they were in bondage, they were forced to give those offerings. Now, Moses, not like FDR, not like Herod, not like Nimrod, was going to create a system where the offerings came in in abundance, but they were free will offerings. Over and over again, they were free will offerings. But if you remove the idea that the 
the temple, including all the Levites, the living stones of a living altar, were part of that temple complex, spread out amongst the people, receiving the offering, the free will offerings of the people, to take care of the needy of the people. If you remove that from your religion, you have no religion. You will end up needing socialism. Because that's the religion you get when you have no pure religion. Is that you end up with socialism. And through cunning works, they have deceived the whole world. That they would believe a lie. And one of the major parts of that lie is it's okay to covet your neighbor's uh, goods. The things that belong to your neighbor. The choices that belong to your neighbor. It's okay to covet that as long as you do it through governments. Who men who exercise authority. Which takes me back to Gomez. Who Gomez, eventually we get down to a conversation with him. Where he is saying, well, the early Christian church accepted Constantine and Eusebius. Well, no. Constantine created a new church. Most Christian bishops had nothing to do with Constantine. Out of 1,200 known bishops, less than 300 were there at the, his Council of Milan. The next time they had another council, it was 150. There should have been thousands showing up. But there wasn't. Because you were seeing a different church. They're telling you that that was the Christian church. But no, that was not the Christian church. It was getting away from the free bread and circuses of Rome, supplied solely through government financing, which is what Rome descended into when Caesar Augustus became called the Son of God. But Jesus, called the Son of God, was creating a system based on charity, not forced offerings by men who exercised authority one over the other. Now with Constantine, he had a blend of the two. He says, you're going to have to go back to free will offerings, because that was going to thin out all the rebels and riffraff who are really not a part of the community. But he jump-started them with equivalent to millions upon millions of dollars worth of silver and land and everything else that he had because he murdered his partners. Because he murdered whole villages and just took over the land and then put somebody else in there. That's the church of Constantine. And they've done that for years. Now they've carefully done that. You know, a lot of churches do it. Uh, I mean, I'm not picking on any particular religion. A lot of Protestants, uh, all of them do it. They go to men who exercise authority, who plunder their neighbors, who institute Systems of force and violence to take away from your neighbor so that they can give you free stuff. They do that all week long and then they gather on whatever they call the Sabbath and think that they are in the Lord's hands. They are not. They are in the hands of Nimrod. They are in the hands of Babylon. They have returned to the bondage of Egypt. They are once more entangled again in the yoke of bondage. And they have need of repentance. So, in chapter 37, we talk about the making of the ark, the the making of the different tables in, in there, the making of the lampstands, and the making of the altar of incense. And, of course, we just talked.
about the altar of incense. This, why incense? What is this meaning of the incense? Now, I, I can understand candlesticks, source of light, but why are, are they, uh, are there four bowls like almonds and, uh, with these flowers, etc., and the knops and the branches and all this stuff? What is the significance of that? Well, if you don't get some of the basics, there's no reason to take you on to the rest of it. But the that chapter ends with this idea of pure incense, uh, of sweet spices. And they talk about an apothecary. Somebody just gave me a book recently of, of how to blend these oils and all this kind of stuff. Remember, all these substantive things that they're talking about have a spiritual, even psychological, I I don't like the word psychological, but it has to do with the mind and the way the mind works. And God wants to write upon your heart and upon your mind so that he creates certain patterns of thinking in you. So that you, you're not thinking, well, I need stuff, so I'll go to these men who exercise authority and they'll take it away from my neighbor so that I can have this stuff. I need my kids to be educated. I'm not going to start a school where, or educate them myself. I will go to the government. They will take from my neighbor. They'll put tax on their property. They don't pay their property tax. They will send men with guns to take their property away and we'll give it to somebody else. If you go back to Lysurgis, uh, documents of Ancient Greece, they had a whole system. I mean, you you weren't to have gold and silver in your pocket like Moses said. You could have lead money. But they had a system where if anybody was not contributing, you could just beat them up right on the street. The women could divorce the husband. He still had to support the woman. He still had to support the family. And if he didn't do it, you could... Almost anybody with impunity could beat them up on the street. That's right. But, you know, maybe they were, when they were saying on the street, if we look at the Greek, they actually mean in the civil courts. They could beat them up in the civil courts. All the rules of Lysurgis, all the rules of the Communist Manifesto are a part of the law in the United States today and certainly a part of the law in Australia and Canada and England and everywhere else. They all have their central banks. They all have their one purse system. That All the people are back in the bondage of Egypt where a portion of their labor belongs to the government. They don't have any. It's forcibly taken from them. None of them are actually living by faith, hope, and charity. None of them are doing what Christ said. There's a lot of people who say they're Christians in these countries. But they're not actually taking care. I shouldn't say none. There are some that are actually taking care of one another through faith, hope, and charity. But are they doing all the other things that Christ said, all the other things that Moses said? And it's an individual journey. It's an individual thing that you need to learn how to do. So, what is this incense? What I mean, incense smells. (laughs) Sweet incense. Uh, Mentioned many times in the Old Testament, the smell rising from the burning of the incense, from the sacrifice of the incense. The reality is, is the reason Justin Trudeau stinks, like Jordan Peterson says he stinks, <laughs> is because 
you got him not through pure incense. What makes it pure is that it's free will offerings. That it is offered with love and charity. Canada does not operate by faith, hope, and charity. Canada operates by force, fear, and violence. Forcing their neighbor to contribute to what they wanted. Jordan Peterson was a socialist when he started. He's still more of a socialist than he would probably like to admit. I have great hope that he'll see it. But from his study of Exodus, they did not get it. And it's little bits and pieces that they left off. Uh, little, you know, little things they didn't understand. The idea that Moses was setting up the social safety net based on virtue, based on charity. And the people had to attend to the weightier matters on a local, on a micro level. And then eventually on the macro. Not on the macro and then eventually trickles down to the micro. But on the micro level. The the treasury of the kingdom of God is in the pockets of the faithful. It's not in a vault. It's in the pockets of the faithful. In order for that to be effective, the faithful have to come together to create that circulatory system that allows the blood to flow where it needs to flow. If I go out and run a mile, I'm going to need blood in parts of my body that I don't need when I'm sitting here. And my body will automatically open up capillaries, the heart will pump, uh, chemicals will circulate so that the blood gets to the muscles that it needs to get to. Because I'm connected. All the vascular system in my body is connected. To be the body of Christ, to be the body of the kingdom of God, to be Israel, those who contend with the Spirit of God, they operate according to the Spirit of God. The wisdom of God is being put into them. Those people have to connect. They have to come together. You won't do it right. You won't do it accurately as you come together. But you have to come together. And it's not about empowering some minister to do things for you, to organize things for you, to buy a piece of land, to set everything up for you. It's about you individually gathering together and becoming the the essential parts of the complex of the sanctuary of God. Each of you are a part of the altars of clay. Each of you ministers should eventually desire to be, a, if that is what God is calling you to do, be a part of the altars of stone. You are not to hew one another. You are to figure out how to fit together to become the altars of sacrifice based on love and charity, which is what Moses was teaching, what Jesus was teaching. If you think you're going to gather together in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, and everything's going to work out, it's kind of what Jordan Peterson is doing with his conferences coming up in June or whenever. If you're not basing it, if you don't understand the social safety net of society based on faith, hope, and charity, and a legal system, of course, you know, like, I, it's clear in the U.S. courts, clear in the state courts, 
that the juries have the right to decide fact and law unless, of course, they waive it, which they do almost every jury, uh, every person that's on jury today because they don't understand the law. They do, they didn't do their homework. But that precedent originally came from England, which is got to be in Canada, got to be in Australia, got to be, at least you can call on that precedent of English common law because that's in English common law where the jury has the right to decide fact and law. But you couldn't get 12 honest men together, tried and true today because they're all engaged in covetous practices. They're all either engaged in that or they're engaged in sloth. And they're not engaged in the sweet incense of God's kingdom. But anyway, we'll have to finish more of this later on. But I think we pretty much got through up to 37. But then there's 38. <laughs> and uh, there's a little bit more in there. But we'll maybe do that in the afternoon show. But you can ask yourself that later. Until then, peace on your house and may God be with you. Thank you.